Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, after a year of talking about the recall of Governor Gavin Newsom quite a bit, we're going to talk about it just one more time. I promise. Well, maybe. Well, probably not. But with the guy who engineered the hugely successful campaign to defeat it. That's right. Political consultant Juan Rodriguez managed a very well-funded effort to save Gavin Newsom's job using, we'll talk with him about all this, but a robust digital campaign, uh, get out the vote plan and so on to maximize Democratic turnout. Got a little help from a couple people named Biden and Harris to crush the recall. And One of whom he used to work for. Uh, yes, and with, and yes. So we'll talk about all that, but let's talk about the recall first. Yeah, but first, let's talk about the recall without one, so he can tell us everything yeah, we got wrong. So, no, no, no. Isn't it weird that we have for months been talking and thinking and speculating about this, and now it's over, and everything's kind of the same. You know, the problems are the same. I mean, things are different. Obviously, the political landscape is different. But in terms of what we, you know, have as a state to confront and uh, and our daily lives, not much has changed. We're still dealing with the pandemic, still trying to put those wildfires out, still got it's homeless on the street. almost like maybe we shouldn't have spent $300 million. $276 million later. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously a lot a lot has, uh, has transpired. Um, and, you know... We'll talk with Juan about this, of course, but uh, you know there was there was a moment in August where everybody was who was who cared about Newsom beating back the recall was kind of freaking out um, a, little a little bit. But then you know you also look back at the PPIC polls and things really didn't change at all. No, it was about engagement, which we knew from the beginning. But I do think, I mean, I actually. Not to make this all about me, Scott, but... Um, <laughs> Again? Uh, no, no, no. It was just funny because I was on vacation for in July, and I came back, and that poll came out, and I was like, wait, 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 what, what happened? Wait, we're what worried about this now? Like, it was, it was this moment, and I think that it did motivate folks. I mean... To me, the most interesting kind of thing about this stepping back is really thinking about the messaging by both parties and what it sort of pretends for next year. And I think that what we saw is the sort of evolution where last winter it was a lot of anger, mostly on the right, but not only over those lockdowns and the COVID response uh, that kind of helped fuel getting this on the ballot. And in the final months of this campaign, Democrats really flipped that on their head on its head and, and they embraced that and said, yeah, we kept the state safe. And if you look at the CDC numbers, um, despite some of our callers on election night, uh, California's doing really well. It is you doing know? really well. And it's funny because, you know, remember the, originally the conventional wisdom was let's wait until, say, November to have this recall election. Democrats were saying that way, the, you know, the pandemic will be behind us. There won't be any more wildfires. And yet, as it turned out, the fact that the Delta variant emerged as it did really helped Newsom keep his job because, as you say, not only did California do a pretty good job under his you know, leadership of containing the virus, but 
with Larry Elder in the race, suddenly there was Texas and Florida, which were you know bright red on those maps right. of COVID outbreaks. And so I that guess, really changed everything. Yeah, and I just wonder, like, I do feel like this was something that Republicans had felt would have a lot of potency. And I just... When you look at the numbers, like it's not like just Democrats have gotten vaccinated, even though this has become a culture war. Um, And so it just really makes me wonder, like, if that message, like what that message looks like in 22. Obviously, it depends on where we are with the virus, but it is fascinating. I guess what I want to know is, like, does that mean recall fever is over, Scott? Uh, No, it does not at all. In fact, uh, there's many of them going on across the states still, including here in San Francisco with the uh, district attorney, uh, Chesa Boudin, facing a recall. But we did find out this week uh, that the DA in Sonoma County, who had also been facing a recall, funded by one disgruntled human being, a developer, that one went crashing down, I think it was last I heard, 70-30 or something like that, or even higher higher, on the no vote. And then in Los Angeles, uh, another district attorney, George Gascon, uh, who's faced a recall potential uh, almost before taking office, uh, that one apparently has fizzled. It doesn't look like they're going to get the signatures. However, the backers of that one say, oh, we're going to come back with a new one. We're going to rebrand our recall. But it does make you wonder. I mean, clearly, LA is so big. You need a lot of signatures. I mean... Yeah. And I do think like this is I mean, the the prosecutors are a whole other question, right, than like a gubernatorial recall. Um, but I, I wonder on that, like crime was something, again, like COVID that Republicans really tried to use in this recall. And I'm not here to say people aren't concerned about crime and we don't have challenges, especially around quality of life issues like homelessness and, and, and you know, more petty theft and things like that. But like that is not at the top of voters' minds when you pull them. It did not seem to catch fire in this race. And so I think it's going to be really interesting to watch how this plays out, especially in San Francisco, where the threshold is lower. So Chase Boudin may, you know, it's more likely that that would qualify than the L.A. one ever looked like. Um, is that something that people are angry enough? And and can they pin it on one prosecutor? Yeah. You well, know? well, and once again, it will come down to turnout. Who is going to vote? Who's going to be the most mobilized to vote? And you're probably going to have another oddly timed election, uh, a time when people aren't used to voting. And so right. uh, we'll see. I mean, I do think it is a little closer to home, literally and figuratively, crime. And I do think that those videos that went viral, uh, in fact, I don't even want to give all yeah, that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that later. We'll it, give it but, later. But yeah, like, but, yeah, but I think we'll see. You know, it's uh, but clearly, you know, all of this has fueled talk in Sacramento about changing the recall process. It's 110 years old. It's a little creaky, a little antiquated. And clearly what the framers, so to speak, had in mind, Hiram Johnson et al., this is not, I don't think, it, you know, where no. you've got uh, multiple, like $100 million plus million being spent for and against a recall. And and it's just, I think most people would agree, at least in the last Berkeley IGS poll, that it's maybe a little too easy to get a recall on the ballot. And then that second part of the ballot where, you know, the person who comes in first with it could be 25 percent of the vote could end up being governor. And so we'll see if that uh, gets uh, any traction up in uh, Yeah, in for sure. We'll be watching that closely. In the meantime, you yeah. talk to... The man of the hour today. Yeah. You know, uh, Governor Newsom is going to have yet another high profile appointment. Uh, Associate Justice uh, Tino Cuellar, who Jerry Brown appointed to the state Supreme Court back in 2014. A very impressive gentleman born in Mexico. Uh, He is going to accept the position as president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Really interesting position and a very well thought of uh, think tank. He's going to be opening up uh, an office in Silicon Valley. They used to have a California office and they're going to be reopening that. 
And, you know, he just had a, had a lot to say about uh, how what he's learned as an immigrant living on the border, growing up in Imperial County, and also seeing, you know, these all these problems yeah. and issues come before him on the court, that it, it being in California gives you an international framing for all these issues, which I think will serve him well. Right. But what an interesting decision. I mean, people don't give up those judgeships easily, and it, it just, it does sort of... Make you wonder, like, why did he feel, you know, like this would be a bigger potential impact? And, um, yeah. and we should would say he have also, done it if Newsom had lost? Well, I guess Newsom would have 38 days <laughs> to appoint right. somebody <laughs> to replace him. But uh, obviously, uh, that's uh, not a problem for him right now. But And I should mention just real quick, we did talk to uh, yeah. Tino Cuellar in 2020, I want to say. 2020, yep. Uh, so check it out we'll uh, put on it our in podcast. The show notes. We'll yeah. put it in the show notes. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be joined by Democratic political consultant Juan Rodriguez. He managed the very successful No on the Recall campaign. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And uh, now that the recall is history, we're delighted to have with us today Juan Rodriguez. He's a partner with the political consulting firm now known as Bear Star Strategies. He managed the campaign to defeat the recall of Gavin Newsom, resulting in a huge political win for the governor this week. Juan Rodriguez, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Congratulations. What have you been up to? Yeah. Just not taking any naps, talking to <laughs> folks like yourself. What? <laughs> but, uh, like, you know, you've, you've been immersed in this, uh, as we all have, but not like you have for the last several, almost a year now or more. Looking at the numbers, are things pretty much where you thought they'd be? Or I'm sure they're where you hoped they would be. But, you know, what are your takeaways? Listen, I, you know, throughout this process, you I was listening to your conversation a little earlier. If you looked at some of the you know, public polls and even in our internal polls really early on in the process, we've always known kind of a simple theory of the case, which is if Democrats voted that we would win this race and we would defeat the recall. And if you go back to January, February, Democrats weren't really paying attention to this, right? There were some public polls that saw Republican awareness above 70 plus, and you saw that pretty much stable throughout the process. 
have a couple theories of why. We can get back to that in a minute. But Democrats were about 36% in terms of overall awareness. They weren't really paying attention to this. Most were like, Marissa, just traveling, having vacation, or figuring out how to just actually get through this pandemic. Well, right. I mean, COVID was like all we were thinking about for a while, right? Exactly. So for us, you know, excited about the turnout. I think a couple things, it, it one really does, I, I personally think, provide a case study in what um, Democrats across the state and even, you know, nationally should be thinking about as they're going into the midterms. But I think at the end of the day, what it does tell you is, you know, that the overwhelming majority of people in the state really kind of looked at the what was at stake and evaluated the job that the governor has been doing through the course of this pandemic and, and really put not just a stamp of approval, but really kind of pushed back against the two visions that were really on display in this election. So is that mean that we all and by I mean we I mean consultants, the media, the public should like stop worrying about polls so much that far out? Or is it more like did that help you guys that people kind of freaked out in August? Because my sense sort of anecdotally from talking to Democrats is that that message of like a concern about turnout did get out to people who maybe were not as engaged at that point. Yeah, I think without question. I mean, I think to answer your original question, should we stop listening to polls? I think that the real answer that everyone I think can come to your conclusion on is you can make a poll basically say anything. And and you really have to dig into the cross tabs, look at what some of the challenge with some of those polls were the hypothesis of you know what turnout was going to look like and was there going to be a significant drop off in Democrats actually turning out to vote? That was obviously a possibility. Um, but what it ultimately did do, whether you agreed with it or didn't agree with it, and we had our kind of own view in theory of the case, was that the challenge really was to drive up that awareness and that level of urgency that some of those public polls created, I think, at the end of the day, really woke up the base. And then when you add the combination of that with the you know, field program that we were able to build and the messaging campaign that we, you know, layered on top of it, I think it's when you really started seeing kind of that activism and folks really, you know, begun to turn out. I remember back in January, not long uh, after the insurrection, uh, Rusty Hicks, the chair of the Democratic Party, held a, a news conference online and referred to the recall as a coup attempt and really were trying to make it an echo of what had happened at the U.S. Capitol. And there was a tremendous amount of blowback and pushback, and he really walked that back a bit. But what did you guys make of that comment, that statement? I mean, were you part of framing that? And what did you learn from the reaction to it? Well, listen, I got I got got to live a lot of credit to Rusty. He really kind of went out there and really early on, you know, recognize this for what it was. In California, you've seen voter registration for Republicans drop over the past couple of years. And there are a lot of different reasons why, but we are in a dramatically different place than we were in 2003. So I think his overall messaging and kind of point at the time was really focused on recognizing that if Republicans wanted to win statewide, also look at what was happening nationally, right? We just had election rejection. We had the attempted coup of the Capitol. We had all these things that were coming to surface. And and as we were going through the pandemic, the what he was highlighting and was trying to do was recognizing the problem we were going to have if the recall qualified, which is how do you wake up the Democratic base? How do you get them energized and recognize that what maybe happened in D.C. can happen in your backyard? And I think at the end of the day, um, you got to give him credit for coming out really early and helping organize the party for the way he did. And, and we were really appreciative of that fact for sure. 
I mean, the other thing looking back over the sort of the course of this year was a lot of, um, you know, concern over the ground game and the engagement. And particularly, I think since 2020, we've been hearing a lot about engagement of Latinos and voters of color and whether, you know, are they really that base that Democrats can depend on? Can you just talk a little bit about like how you all approach that? Um, Obviously, you are Latino. You are the son of immigrants. Um, You know, I know this is something that you've thought about in all your races, but like, Again, like, was the concern valid and what was the sort of strategy to get out there and actually connect with these voters in a way that they were going to hear, not just like on TV? Yeah, I mean, this I can be on this topic for hours. I have so many different thoughts on it. I will say a couple of things. The first is, you know, there are there was some validity to the claims, right? These are there were whether it was foundations or activists that are constantly feeling like these subgroups, Latinos, you know, African-American API are, are always think of last when you're doing kind of voter outreach and these field programs ultimately develop last for a variety of different reasons. In California, field campaigns are not traditionally a feature of statewide campaigns because it's incredibly cost prohibitive to run a real efficient program. So, you know, you got to recognize and see some of these folks from where they're at. They're, they're bringing up some real claims that need to be addressed and are sometimes really challenged when you have limited resources. But, um, they were unfounded in a way because for us, because we always knew that our theory of the case was that we needed to drive up turnout, we started investing in field before we even put one ad up on air, whether through digital or on TV. We started developing our distributed organizing program thanks to the work that Tim Tagaris and Sydney and eventually other folks that ended up coming board like Lindsey Hopkins did. Um, recognizing that it would really have to take off and finally cohere when ballots began to drop in the mail. Um, So we started investing in field really early on. And then I think the second thing is, and you, in talking about Latinos, my one um, just frustration that we have as a democratic party, or just even in politics is we always have the same talking point, which is, you know, Latinos care about more than immigration. They're not a monolith. The reality is in California, we don't have homogenous groups in any subset. It was so diverse. Um, and but we are, as you know, we've been talking about, have all been going through this pandemic that had global implications. It shut down everyone's ability to actually figure out how to continue to survive. The Latinos were disproportionately impacted through the pandemic. And I think at the end, the combination of having really early investments in field that you know really kind of blew up and, and grew um, and investing in community-based organizations that have also been on the front line doing not just you know voter registration, but doing outreach in these communities was key for our success, I think. What do you think the impact of that will be, uh, both for the Republicans, but obviously you're a Democratic consultant, f- you know, for 2022? I mean, you've put in place all this infrastructure you're talking about uh, in a year that was supposed to be an off year, uh, but now we've got these in- really important midterms coming up. Yeah, I mean, I think th- a couple of things. If you look at Orange County and if you look at these traditional, you know, more purple type seats where, you know, they've been traditionally a toss up and you see overwhelming support for the governor and beating back this recall. I think that is cause for alarm for Republicans and cause for an opportunity for Democrats to make sure that this infrastructure and this organizing you know efforts don't kind of go to waste. So I think from my perspective, it really does provide an opportunity. I do think that the work for the midterm started yesterday. 
Um, and, you know, having these groups vertically integrated into campaigns and making sure that we're driving up voter participation is going to be a priority for campaigns across the state and frankly, nationally. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. And our guest today is Juan Rodriguez, who managed the hugely successful campaign to defeat the recall of Gavin Newsom. And I should also say has a great name, the name of my first son. (laughs) Um, Juan, I mean, you this is not the only big campaign you've worked on. You worked on um, Kamala Harris's successful 2016 Senate run, her unsuccessful run for president in 2020. You worked for former Los Angeles mayor Antonio Villaraigosa. Just before we kind of move on to some other stuff, I'm just curious, like what you when you do look ahead nationally at 22, there seems to be a lot of concern among, you know, Democrats just just the sort of history of midterms is that the party in power often gets kind of walloped in those. Um, I mean, what do you think both Newsom and kind of more broadly Democrats need to be doing to push back on this? Like, what are the lessons beyond what we've already discussed? Yeah, I mean, I think don't be timid on running on your record leaning into what you are doing to try to accelerate positive public health outcomes. The pandemic, we may be in a dramatically different position in a year from now, but it's not like anyone's going to completely forget that a year ago, the whole world shut down and we're still going to be dealing with COVID. And and there are certain states that are continuing to regress and go backwards. So I think that will be front and center. That is one. The other is the one thing that I think is really unique and Um, and makes me optimistic about the Democratic Party is what the governor was able to do in closing, you know, weeks of this campaign and the broad coalition of, frankly, stars that you have within the Democratic Party from Bernie Sanders to Elizabeth Warren to AOC to Amy Klobuchar, Barack Obama and, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. These are all people that are national leaders that are really well known across the country, but he also you know, focus on bringing up kind of the next generation of leaders, the Alex Padillas, the Robert Garcias, um, and for Democrats, highlighting those leaders, highlighting the the work that they're doing at the local, at the state and national level um, should be something that should be celebrated. But for me, I think the biggest lesson is really, you know, not being timid in terms of leaning into your record, specifically on COVID. Juan, we always on this show like to talk about people's bio a little bit. You have such an interesting life story. Your parents came to the U.S. They fled El Salvador when they were young because of the Civil War. Um, I think they, uh, I don't, they, they married, I think, in California. I'm not sure. But uh, tell us a little bit about them. Uh, listen, the parent, my, you know, my parents are the best thing in my life, right? They they sacrificed so much just to kind of create an opportunity. You guys were talking about Justice Cuellar, who has a really interesting story. The, our stories are frankly not, you know, that, you know, similar or are actually very similar to a lot of people in California. And my parents decided to leave um, El Salvador during a time that um, there was significant civil unrest in the middle of a civil war. And the way I describe my personal story is they, for me, kind of represent my first view into the story of un- and company miners, right? We saw a lot of this happen over the past couple of years, particularly in the Trump administration. And you see people making those decisions, not because they're interested in kind of putting themselves in harm's way, but really looking for an opportunity. And and my parents gave me exactly that, an opportunity to succeed. And this country has given my family, um, you know, everything we have. 
Well, you grew up, I think you were born in Burbank and grew up in North Hollywood and your mom cleaned houses. Your dad was a carpenter. Um, I just wonder, like, what was it like? I would assume you probably had a pretty big sort of diversity of socioeconomic exposure within your school and your community. Um, I don't know, like what how did you kind of handle that? Um, you know, it's interesting. I used to spend a lot of time going with my mom to clean houses when I was a kid. And when I was younger, I hated it. You know, I hated taking, you know, public transportation. I just wanted to be at home playing with my friends. And um, I didn't really fully appreciate the kind of struggle and the life lessons at the time. And I think um, the unique opportunities to even just go with her and be exposed into a different world, I think, um, really makes me focused on trying to figure out how to continue to identify and collaborate with, you know, individuals, whether elected officials or my partners or community-based organizations that at the end of the day kind of hold on to some of those progressive values. So the story like mine or Justice Cuellar becomes more of the norm and less of the, you know, of a, you know, an individual that is seemingly unique, but really more representative of what, a lot of folks in this country are doing in a variety of different sectors. Do you like ever have moments where you're like standing with the vice president or the governor in a room full of political elites and and just go like, I don't know, how do I get here? Or do I do I feel out of place? Like, how, like quite a road to travel. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I for a second I had that moment the other day when the vice president came into town and I was standing with the vice president and um, and the governor and we're about to do an event. Um, and then it kind of kicked into gear. The, the thing that all these folks have mentioned to me one time or the other, which is you just got to make sure that you're not the last. You got to if you get you have the opportunity to walk in through that door, you got to break that door open and make sure that, uh, you know, several other people, you know, behind you can, you know, go even further than you ever even dreamed of. Well, and talk about worlds colliding. Uh, you know, Marisa mentioned you'd worked for Antonio Villaraigosa when he ran for mayor. And I believe you went to a campaign fundraiser maybe in 2004 and you'd been invited by the family uh, of someone your mom worked for as a house cleaner. Uh, is that right? Oh, you guys are good at research. Yeah, exactly right. I actually wore my Sunday's best, the only suit that I could have. I was this super idealistic college student who like thought I knew everything just because I'd just taken a class and got an A in it. So I decided to ask him a couple questions and um and that was the first time I met him. And you know, the one thing that he did that I will never forget was he he completely knew I was out of place and was not quite sure what I was doing there. Asked me what I was doing and I I love my mother and my father. So I was like, my mother's in the back, you know, washing dishes and he went to go introduce himself. Wow. Democrats yeah. never leave a banquet before going through the kitchen <laughs> and shaking hands, good. right? No, those are the people doing the work. So that's absolutely right. Those are the voters. So talk about then was that sort of the beginning of catching the political bug? I know you had originally planned on like working on Wall Street and, and maybe buying your mom one of those houses. Yeah. You know, life isn't linear. That's what I thought I was going to do. My plan was to jump on a plane and move to New York and, you know, go work for Lehman Brothers or some, you know, small little firm. And, you know, things changed. And um, I realized that, you know, pursuit of money was less important than trying to have an impact in life. And I'm trying to do my best at it. So, you, you know, you let me know how I'm doing. Your parents must be proud, though. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Speaking of research that we did, uh, you spun records when you were at UCLA. You were a DJ. Uh, what kind of music yeah. were you playing? 
Oh, I was playing everything. I can, you know, I should start working on your segment. I could do your background DJ music. <laughs> <laughs> still, still into the music. I want to ask I you lo- though about. I love, I love everything. I can on any given moment play Rachmaninoff to like listen to hip hop and Biggie and Tupac. So it is pretty eclectic. Nice. Um, I'm curious about the politics of L.A. and how you see those compared to, say, the politics of San Francisco. I mean, which David Chu has, we've quoted him many times, said it's like uh, up here politics is like uh, a knife fight in a phone booth. Whereas in L.A., people barely pay attention. They barely vote. Yeah, you know, San Francisco is a beast all in and of itself. Coming out of San Francisco, you have to really be about rough and tumble and, and do the works. L.A. is the same. It's a little bit more tribal. And you also have significant more voter apathy, right? People aren't as engaged, geographically dispersed. A Latino from Boyle Heights is not a Latino from Southern, you know, San Fernando Valley and vice versa. So I think it's um, in that respect, it's really challenging because LA is a world-class city and has the ability to actually move markets yet voters for the most part um, have a tendency not to be as engaged as you see, you know, voters in, in San Francisco and other parts of the state. But hopefully with changing of, you know, these elections and trying to consolidate them in more off year um, regular held elections, I think um, we'll hopefully see some increase in that. So you we mentioned that you worked for Via Ragosa and then, of course, you uh, helped run Newsom's campaigns. Um is that ever awkward? They're kind of frenemies or, or rivals, I would say, in politics. Yeah, it's sometimes it can get a little awkward. <laughs> um, but, you know, this, you know, this race was absolutely clear. You know, this race is, was never about Antonio Villaraigosa or any other Democrat versus Governor Newsom. This race from the beginning has been about a guy who believed that, you know, he wanted to microchip the undocumented because it worked for animal control. And the origin of this was because the governor provided healthcare um, access to the undocumented. So for me, when you isolate these problems on what they really are, it is it is not very challenging to double down. And I think the governor has been excellent at the work that he's been doing. All right. Juan Rodriguez, you've earned a little break. Thanks for joining us as your last duty rest. before yeah. you get some uh, <laughs> vacation. So thanks so much. Thank you, guys. All right, that's it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Brandon Willard. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tovin, Lindsay, Ernesto Aguilar, Vinny Tong, Otis Taylor, Taylor, and Erica Aguilar. I am Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at M Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing, 
and I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.